This is the Intoxicated Podcast. Hey, what's up, everyone? Today, Matt and I we sat down with Dave Friedentag, aka Uncle Dave. Dave is a therapist and counselor who primarily works with youth, and he is an overall good dude. This was a fun interview. Hope you enjoy it. All right, well, welcome everyone to the Untoxicated Podcast. Matt, I am super excited because I got my good friend Dave Friedentag here to share his story, share his expertise, to share all that knowledge in his head for our millions of listeners. Man, Dave's a good guy. When I came to your surprise 40th birthday party, (laughs) uh, Dave and my wife and I hung out quite a bit, and uh, I got to hear part of his story just enough to say... This is a great idea when you suggest that we invite him. So, Dave, welcome, man. Glad you're here. Thank you, guys. It's an honor. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. One of the reasons that uh, we do what we do, Jason is a therapist, and I, I write about addiction and recovery. The main reason that we do what we do is because of personal experience, because of crap that we went through that was painful, and and we wanted to figure out why that happened to us, and how's the brain work, and you know why were we why did we go down the path we did um so if you're comfortable with it i think a great place to start is for you to tell us um what happened in your past that made you interested in in therapy and and dealing with young young people um well let me preface this real too dave so dave you have 30 years recovery 30 years sober 30 30 years sober sober. awesome i actually quit drinking more than 30 years but Mm -hmm. I only count when I was drug-free of everything. Because mm. the alcohol, I quit, no problem. And I quit drinking alcohol because when I was on alcohol, I liked to do cocaine. Mm. So in my break, great brain, I was like, quit drinking, you can control the cocaine use, and then you can go back to just drinking alcohol like a normal person. So I quit drinking alcohol and then just kept relapsing on cocaine. But I would do cocaine and be like, but I don't drink anymore. It was weird. <laughs> so you felt good about it? like, uh, Yeah, the alcohol I wouldn't do. I, no, 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 I don't drink anymore. But I kept relapsing on cocaine. And so the 30 years is from everything. Mm. I haven't done anything, not even weed. Yeah, the alcohol was a funny one for me. The fact that you were able to quit it, no problem? No problem, no urges, no cravings. Well, you said, it's funny because... One of the things I remember the day I met you at the party that you said was, everyone's got their poison, and everyone's poison mm-hmm. is different. And well, it's just a matter of finding yours that gets you in trouble, right? What I've learned is through experimentation when you're young, you know, I started at 12, smoking weed and drinking. Well, got drunk the first time at a bar mitzvah, which is pretty common with family. Oh, you can have a drink. Sure. And then I stuck two or three, and... I did the whole thing, champagne with head spins and puking, and <laughs> I think my parents thought I was funny, but I was miserable. It's amazing we'll ever drink a second time after mm. go through something like that. Um, so you start experimenting around, and even though I abused marijuana all through junior high and high school and alcohol, I don't feel I was addicted to that, because when it came time, I was a senior in high school. This is a great story. So I'm sitting. <laughs> called the bong circle sitting there with my good friends senior year of high school no girls in the room we're all smoking bong hits listening to music nobody's communicating nobody's talking the music's <laughs> up not one girl in the room 
And I look around the room, and you know, when you're stoned, you get that inner dialogue and start talking to yourself. And I look around the room, and I'm like, look at these burned out, pothead losers. And then it dawns on me, I must look just like them. I mean, we were just vegetables. You know? And so I thought to myself, I'm going to quit smoking the weed. And all my friends were like, free and tag, you're never going to quit. And I quit. I was done. I was like... I don't want to be a burned out pothead loser anymore. Barely getting by, you know, barely making it through high school. Um, but I kept drinking and doing other drugs. I just gave up the weed. Was the weed as easy to quit as the alcohol? The weed was. Hmm. And I loved so that it. I smoked poison. every day. I loved weed. I smoked every day, you know, until that day. I just got sick of it. It was definitely abuse, definitely, because, mm -hmm. you know, we used to call it wake and bake. You wake up in the morning before school and get stoned, and then meet your friends at the school bus stop and get stoned, and ditch second period and get stoned. That's kind of how I functioned through mm -hmm. high, How'd you high do school. in school? <laughs> Not well. <laughs> I always tell this great story how my in junior high... The vice principal knew my father on a first-name basis. Mm. You know, they wouldn't call home and say, Mr. Friedentag, we have, this is Mr. Jones. We have Dave in my office. He'd be like, Harvey, it's Jim. <laughs> I'm sending Dave home again. So, it was horrible. Yeah. So when did you stop smoking weed? So you stopped smoking weed. Senior year kept, of high school. Okay. But then you kept drinking cocaine. Yeah, the cocaine came along. Because you had extra cash because you weren't spending on weed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I tried it and played around with it. And then I was in college up in Greeley after I'd graduated high school, probably 82, 83, and I started getting into it. And it was a big party drug back then. I mean, everybody did cocaine. And then I started selling it to make money and met a cool girl and we moved in together and then my use started escalating because we had money and drugs and sleep in do whatever you want and, and then my brother taught me how to smoke it and that was the kiss of death for oh me. yeah yeah i was smoking mm -hmm. cocaine and selling it and it just got bad i got really ugly so does it change how it hits you when you smoke it it's a lot quicker okay and you have more like desire that craving that compulsion um, more 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 and sometimes running out of money would be the only thing that would stop me wow you mm -hmm. know i just like a crazy person mm -hmm. crazy 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 were you doing like because i remember we did it we call it foilies no like i always use pipes okay I use pipes okay yeah i'm I a gotcha. little older than you yeah yeah i gotcha we use you know the <laughs> hash pipes and glass pipes okay. and when I was really on a binge, I would, like, I'd break your that lamp if I needed mm -hmm. a pipe. Yeah. I'd break antennas off TVs and bend them and make a little crack pipe. It was, <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, Dave, I remember, and I share this story, your story a lot in the, in the groups I do. You had an experience doing coke until the early hours in the morning and the birds were chirping. Mm. <laughs> I used to get angry that the birds were chirping and the sun was out. Because like, the party I'm, was over or something? No, because it's like annoying. I want to go to bed. You know, I'm out of coke. It's the middle of the day, maybe 9, 10 in the morning, and I want to go to sleep. The fucking birds are keeping me up. 
chirping. Day like this, gorgeous day outside, <laughs> sun shining. I'd be driving home just feeling like rode hard. And I'd look at the, I'd like, how do these people go out jogging right now? They're walking their dogs and taking their kids to the park. What I didn't realize is they went to bed at eight o'clock when I was just getting started. So you were so deep in that you didn't even recognize like normal behavior as normal. It just I hated looked the morning. Like, oh, the sun's out. Ugh. Were you able to make it through school in Greeley? No, I dropped out to move in with my girlfriend down here. Okay. Mm. And that was horrible. Yeah. So was that like your your bottom, or when you decided to to stop? No, not okay. yet. So it went on for a couple years like that, just barely getting by, selling coke, using coke, the pain and the misery and the depression, jobs here and there, trying to keep them and trying to get your act together. Were you able to... A lot to, of failures. Were you able to connect the misery and depression with the use or did you not, not have that wake, awakening yet? Okay. Not quite yet. Because I was still convincing myself it was fun mm -hmm. and entertaining and, mm. you know, it's those other people that don't get it, man. I'm living the life. <laughs> pocket full of cash. And so my girlfriend had moved out and I was even more miserable because, of course, you know, broken heart. So you do more drugs. And then um, my good friend started checking up on me and telling me, dude, you got a problem. And when the people that you party with are telling mm. you, you got to mm. slow down. So them and my brothers, my brothers would come by in the middle of the night. If my light was on, they'd bang on the door and take any extra cocaine I had. You know, I, of course, I'd be like, well, just give me a little. And I'd already stashed a couple grams away. <laughs> and then they would take, like, if I had an ounce or a half ounce of coke, they would take that. And I would put it in an envelope and sign my name so I knew they were getting in it. You guys stay out of my stash, man. <laughs> um, so they would just take it from me. And usually, you know, five, six hours later, I'd be banging on their door. Please, mm. let me just have a little more. Mm. It's just sad and depressing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I remember once I, I needed shampoo and I couldn't even afford those little trial size bottles at the store. Mm. They're like a dollar or something. Mm-hmm. And I'd been up doing cocaine for a couple of days and I couldn't afford shampoo. Mm -hmm. So things like that start happening. You're sure. like, what's wrong with my life? And then my, my good, good friend, who I'm still friends with, I remember he said to me one day, he goes, you know, Dave, you're fighting a battle with cocaine and the cocaine's winning. Mm -hmm. um, and that that's always stuck with me. And I didn't get clean then, but I was trying. I'd go three, four, five weeks, and then relapse, and then a couple weeks, mm -hmm. and relapse, and then a and, month. And the alcohol and was totally out at this point. No alcohol okay. during this time. Yeah. Um, and I never figured out why I wouldn't drink. Because hmm. what a great cycle, that mm -hmm. cocaine. And oh, alcohol. yeah, for sure. And that might come from my family, who, because my, my mom would always, she didn't want to admit I had a cocaine problem, even after I confessed to her and my mm -hmm. dad. They're like, they would tell their friends, our son's an alcoholic. <laughs> Somehow that's more palatable, you know, <laughs> in society. Yeah, for sure. Um, so my friend told me that, and then he and my other friend one day showed up, and they were just like, dude, it's over. You can either go to a AA meeting with us today, or we're going to take you to one. And I tried every trick in the book to manipulate and 
I'll go tomorrow. All the shit I tried for. I could make myself cry. <laughs> I'm, I can't be broken. I don't know what to do. And they're like, no, we're, we're not falling for it. You have to go. And so they took me to my first AA meeting. It was a three-day binge, man. I've been up three days straight. Mm. Scruffy beard. They did let me shower because I was pretty gross. Did they loan <laughs> you some shampoo? <laughs> I had some shampoo. You had some that point? Okay. Yeah, that day. Uh, but yeah, you live day by day. Yeah, yeah. So I started attending meetings, and I relapsed a few more times. And then the final straw was my sister got pregnant um, with my nephew. And one night I was just really out of my mind. I was high, and I started having these visions of what kind of piece of shit uncle I'd be. Mm-hmm. And that impacted me greatly. Because wow. I didn't want to be that guy that... That little dude's like, oh no, there's my uncle and hiding in shame. Um, and so then it made sense to me in the twelve step programs where they say your higher power. So I made this little unborn boy my higher power, mm. and I focused on him, thinking, I don't care about me. I want to be an uncle. And I don't if you see my car, my plates say Uncle Dave on them, mm. and that's my nickname. When I was in grad school, everybody was like, teacher would take role. Uncle Dave, oh, I'm here. Some of my kids I work with, Uncle Dave. And I love that. It makes me really happy. <laughs> but that was the origin of being called that, huh? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really cool. It, yeah, yeah, it's really, and he's a good kid. He's never smoked weed, mm-hmm. never done drugs. He's helped some of his other friends get into treatment. And he calls me, I'm worried about Jeremy or his buddy Dave um, went to treatment, actually. And so he's one of my favorite my little nephew's friends, Dave, because we just bond over that recovery thing. Yeah. Mm. Um, so that was the final straw. Mm. I didn't want to be that undependable. He already had a dad that was like that. You know, he couldn't depend on him. And then I was about a year sober, clean and sober, as they say, by the grace of God. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I decided I needed to do something with my life. And I went and did some career counseling and aptitude testings. I didn't know what to do. Like, what does an addict do when you're clean and sober? Part of my first year, Friday and Saturday nights, I would build model cars. Because if I was home doing that, mm-hmm. I wasn't out yeah. partying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my friends would be like, come out. No, no, I'm going to stay home. And a lot of solitude back then, but I wanted to do it so bad. And me and my sister were really, really close, so she would always check on me and how you doing? Um, what about treatment? Did you 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 mentioned meetings? I went through a couple of therapists, okay. trying to figure it out, and all of them f- steered me towards AA and NA. You need to go to twelve step meetings, and I would go to these meetings, and I would try to open my heart to it, and it just didn't click for me. I remember sitting in some meetings where. I mean, I have a lot of respect for him, but there's these guys. I remember this one guy was talking to him. 35 years of sobriety. I don't know if it was a Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous, but he goes to a meeting every day, and I was sitting there thinking of this new recovering person trying to figure out who the hell I was, and I thought, 35 years and you still come to meetings? At some point, do you think, I have a pretty good grasp on this, I feel safe and comfortable, and I don't know why. I just I don't. I never got into that whole work the steps and have a sponsor. And 
I have a lot of respect for 12-step work, but it just wasn't my thing. Um, but in that first year, I went to meetings just because I knew if I was in a meeting, I wasn't using. And I met some cool people, heard some great stories. I was going to ask, did the stories resonate? They did, absolutely. Because the 12 steps is one thing, but the usually the, not usually, everyone's experience is different. But mm-hmm. for me, certainly, when I hear someone else's story, I'm like, oh, I'm not alone. Yeah, I, exactly. I feel like that guy does. Yes, and it started getting me thinking about, you know, spirituality and what's in my heart and paying attention to my emotions and feelings. And um, I was happy to know there were other people out there. And I never connected with any of the therapists I had because um, they all they wanted to talk about was 12-step work. Hmm. And I think I was still in that scattered phase where I needed someone to help me pare it down to figure out what was going on. Like, why that need to be so wasted and so high? You know, that that euphoric feeling. I mean, it feels great, but I think there's always something under it. There's mm-hmm. deep mm-hmm. hurt and pain and yeah. trauma, So whatever it was. Yeah. So you, as a result, started doing training to be a therapist uh, well I I started to say I went to this career counseling stuff and then the the guy who did all my testing said there's this program called human services at Metro Mm. the same program you went to yeah and I was like what the hell is human services I had no idea so I went down I met with the head of the department he told me they had this addictions uh focus this specialty and I, I signed up and just started taking classes and I loved them. Mm. Having always been a horrible student, to be in a class that I just consumed mm. the information and, and I got excited about it and I loved it because it, it made me, I'd always done volunteer work like Boy Scouts and Big Brothers. I always liked kids and teenagers and helping them and then this came into my life and I was like, man, I could help kids with addiction like in high school or who were like me, mm-hmm. so stoned they could barely sit in class, you know? <laughs> so so it felt it felt like a good idea because of the idea of helping p- people like you, but did it also, as you're going through these different classes, are you learning about what you went through? Like, is it is it opening doors for you? It is, as- it is. But I think more so was my ability to start talking to friends and people about deeper issues. You know, when you're a pothead, you don't sit around and really talk about much that matters. But when you start to appreciate life and sobriety and joy and integrity and happiness and honesty um, and care and concern, you start getting deeper with people. It's a more meaningful connection. Mm-hmm. I think the drugs break off that connection for you. Um, and I really started enjoying that part of it. And then to learn in class um, theories and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It was exciting and it's interesting. Did the did the time that you spent in therapy when you were in your young adult phase and the fact that you couldn't connect with the therapist and all they did was want to point to 12-step programs, when you were entering this as a career choice for yourself, did you think a lot about that? Do you think, how can I not be like that therapist that just points to the 12-step? Like, how... How can I be better at, how can I connect with the kid? Yes, I do. Because you're so personable, like, Mm -hmm. that's a huge asset for you. Yeah, and I don't think they teach you that in grad school or in in, in undergrad. I think it did. It was something, 
even before I got sober, my friends used to call it Dave therapy. They'd be <laughs> like, we'd be at a bar talking to some girls, and Dave comes walking in, and all of a sudden, the girls are at ease and calm. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't see it, you guys. But they're like, they kept telling me there's this phenomena that people are just drawn to you. I'd be at parties sipping a beer, and people... Which you you know, next thing I know, the whole life story. Mm. So I think it was a natural thing for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think yeah. it's called charisma, right? Yeah. <laughs> I like people. I yeah, like yeah. So it's something about like, you know, you're able to connect with people and you have that mindset too of gratitude. I know when I talk to you, you always say like, you know, I'm 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 thankful for where I'm at in some way or another. You know, I remember one time you sent a text to me. It was like, hey, friends, I love you. And my initial response was, hey, Dave, do you mean to send this to me? <laughs> and, and you're like, no, I meant to send it to you. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Dave's just like a grateful dude, right? <laughs> so I have that's to say awesome. that the guy who taught me that mm-hmm. uh, worked with me at Task. Mm-hmm. He's a guy who's kind of the opposite of me. He's 29 years sober, mm-hmm. a year less than me, and he goes to a meeting every day. Mm. He meditates, he works mm-hmm. his steps, he sponsors people, and he inspired me so much because he has this thirst for his recovery, mm. and it's the top thing in his life. Mm-hmm. Well, probably second, because you know, his connection with God is first, but he's just got such a solid recovery. He's taught me so much about thankfulness and mm. just really appreciating where you're at. Mm-hmm. Here's a guy who had a master's degree, an MBA from DU, and he was in treatment scrubbing toilets with a toothbrush. Wow. And he said, you know, something went wrong in my life when I have this master's degree and I'm, I'm no better than any of the other addicts in this treatment mm-hmm. program. Oh, it's mm-hmm. humbling, mm-hmm. you know? And I think the humility helps me with kids too. Because mm. even when they screw up, I'm like, well, we all do it. Don't beat yourself up over it. Mm-hmm. Let's call your parole officer and tell them. You know, so you knew through the program at Metro that you wanted to that you were gonna help people with addiction. How did you specialize on kids? How did that happen? Well, I always liked volunteer work, and I did my first internship at an inpatient hospital, Porter Hospital. And although it was fun, I didn't feel that like deep satisfaction from it. I felt like an outsider. I felt like an intern. Just sit here and you'll get your credit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't get a chance to get in there and talk to the the people. And then my second internship was at Task, where Jason mm-hmm. and I worked. And um, I just love the kids, the little gang-banging, hardcore, <laughs> dope-dealing thugs. I love them. Task is what mm-hmm. for our Oh, listeners? Task was a program through Denver Juvenile Courts, standard for treatment accountabilities for safer communities. And it was the Central uh, Substance Abuse Assessment, Referral to Treatment, and Case Management of Juvenile Offenders on Probation. So their probation officer would send them to us, we'd evaluate them and send them to treatment and case manage that treatment. You know, if his UAs are clean, is he not clean? Um, And it's no longer around, Mm -hmm. is it? They lost all their funding. Yeah, it's done. It's all about but, funding. Yeah, but side note too, because I remember, you know, back to the humility piece and, you know, not treating people like, oh, you're just an intern. I remember you were in one of our classes in the human service department. You were like a guest speaker. 
And you were saying, hey, if you guys want to intern, um, call this number. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. And so I called it. It was right to Dave. Oh. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the guy who spoke in our class, right? But you were like, oh, yeah, if you want to be an intern, come on down. Um, how's uh, next week at 11 working for you? I was like, oh, man, this guy is cool. This guy is nice, too. Like, but that was my first experience. I remember you, you came to one of our classes, and then you gave us our, your, your number. And it was easy like that to, to be an intern. So Yeah, it was a that good was awesome. program, and I really mm -hmm. believed in it. Um, and I think people need to get into the field if they like it. Because mm -hmm. um, kids know. Mm -hmm. Kids know if you don't care. Mm -hmm. They know if you're just there for the paycheck. And they have no respect for it. How, how do you, how challenging, I don't even know how you're going to answer this. How hard is it to connect with a teenage kid that thinks, thinks he got popped and that's why, he, that's what the problem is, not that the substance mm -hmm. that he's abusing is the problem. Like, how do you get through to him to say, hey, eventually you're going to figure this out. Sooner is better than later. Slowly. Yeah. That was one of the hardest things for me to learn as a therapist, too accept them where they're at and not where I want them to be because I have all this knowledge and recovery and joy about it I gotta remember we're still taking something away from them we're keeping something they love to do away from them we're taking something from them that helps them connect with their peer group and fit in mm -hmm. and and it makes them feel good you know I remember years ago I saw a comedian he comes out on stage and he goes yeah I have to admit, I've done a lot of drugs, and it was a lot of fun up to a point, you know? And I had the same experience in high school. I was popular. I had money, weed. Everybody knew me and my brothers, you know? Oh, that was even before you were Uncle Dave. That's right. Just Dave. <laughs> I, no, unfortunately, I was Little Friedentag. Oh, okay. I used to have to tell people, I have a name. It's Dave. Mm. <laughs> oh, it's Little Friedentag. No. Mm. That used to bug the shit out of me. Yeah. But um, so baby steps. Yeah. You know, even though I know where the, I want them to be, and, and I'm pretty real with them. I'll just say, you know, you can keep thinking that way, but don't be upset when you wind up back in jail. And I tell them, too, when you come back, I'm going to tease you and I'm going to make fun of you. <laughs> do, you do you tell them your story? Does that give you legitimacy in their, in their eyes? When the time's right, I do. Do you? Mm. Yeah. And, you know, some people don't think I should, but it works for me. Mm -hmm. It makes me genuine and real with them. Because mm -hmm. I've had other professionals. I've been in training. You've probably done this in a training where they put somewhat, always, never. And then they, they ask you questions like, do you disclose to people about your recovery? And then everybody in the group goes to one side. So they ask that question, do you disclose to clients your personal life? And I was the only one standing at always. Really? <laughs> and there were all these DYS people, like, but see, their job's different. Their security, their safety, they're not all therapists. Mm -hmm. Some of them were. Mm -hmm. But I believe in being an open book. Mm -hmm. I do it appropriately um, and when the time's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and you've been working as a therapist for about 30 years then? Mm, 26. 26? Yeah, I haven't okay. finished school. Yeah. And then I was a tracker at task first. And then, so, you have a lot of experience, obviously, working with family members who are struggling with their kids, staying in trouble. 
Um, but we also spoke today before. You also have some experience working with family members who have been using. If you're comfortable to sharing that. About um, my brother? Yeah, I'd love to, love to hear about that. So in high school, my idol was my older brother. We're 14 mm -hmm. months apart. And I thought he walked on water, man. He was the coolest. Played guitar in a band and had long hair, and he was just a cool dude. And he knew, he knew where to get the weed and the drugs, which made me like totally popular kid. Because <laughs> I was like, I'll get something. Don't you worry. I'll talk to my bro. Mm -hmm. And he was so cool to me. I mean, he caught me so many times pinching his stash. Like he would, he was selling it, so he'd pounds and stuff around the house. And, He'd catch me nipping buds out of his bags, and never once did he get mad at me. He just said, just keep it, get out mm -hmm. of here. Um, and then, so he was my idol, and funny story, he actually got me high so that when, if I found out he was smoking weed, I wouldn't be able to tell mom. Huh. <laughs> and I think he thought, you know, I'll get my little brother high. And that's how I started smoking weed was because he did it. And I thought, well, it must be okay. Mm -hmm. And I took to it like, man, I like this. Mm -hmm. Seventh grade. And then I smoked almost every day after that. Really? I loved it, yeah. Smoking some weed. It was fun. Where? How would you describe your childhood, your parents? My parents, are, they, just they were married 56 years. They provided well for us. We lived in a nice neighborhood. I wasn't spoiled, but I didn't want for things. But you you and your brother, you were able to keep it hidden pretty well? Got caught once in a while? Oh, I got expelled and kicked out of school. Never expelled, suspended. I think my parents' attitude was they're going to be okay. It's just a little weed, a little alcohol. They're kids. They're teenagers. They're going to be fine. Okay. My dad was pretty much detached. One thing I learned through schooling, like you were asking earlier, is that the dynamics of an addicted alcoholic family, there's usually the alcoholic parent or the addicted parent is emotionally unavailable. And although my dad wasn't an addict or an alcoholic, he hid in his office. He was working to put a roof over our heads. And, you know, in his generation, that was, you're a good father. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're there, you provide food and shelter. Mm -hmm. And mom does all the touchy-feely yeah. stuff. Mm -hmm. And my mom was amazing. My dad's kind of a grump and a sourpuss and kind of an asshole at times, but he's not a bad man. Mm -hmm. He's just detached, he's selfish and into himself. And it's hard growing up with that when you're a boy, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, but so there was a period of time where your brother started encountering some difficulties? Mm. Yeah, his drug use really increased. Mm. He did a wide variety of drugs, pills, and uh, eventually got into heroin, shooting cocaine and heroin. And even I didn't know that for years until mm. so a friend of mine that got into heroin told me, I did my first heroin with your brother. And I was like, wow. So he kept that hidden from me. And I remember he told a story when we were both going to school in Greeley. It was his senior year in, in college, and I went over there, and he had this big freaking scrape on his face, like he busted his face open. And he told me he was riding his bike, and he wiped out. Well, years later, he told me he was shooting cocaine, and um, 
he did a bigger bigger hit than he'd ever done in his life, and it was really good coke. And he said he was pushing the syringe in, and he started getting dizzy. And being an addict, you're like, oh, this is fun. So he just finished it off, and he blacked out, and he hit his head on the mm. on the fireplace. And I never knew that. I was like, dude, you mm. could have died. Mm. And then he got, he just got worse and worse and worse. And then I got in recovery, and our relationship just mm. it was horrible. He hated me. Mm-hmm. He would call me names. Then I got my job at probation. Mm. You nork. Um, You're a nork, the pussy. Yeah. But yeah, the drugs really got to him and changed him and it's no longer fun when you're an addict mm-hmm. and he wound up overdosing mm-hmm. which i think i was telling you this the crazy thing about addiction is when i heard my brother had died the first thought my little addict brain said was you could go relapse and everybody would feel sorry mm-hmm. for you mm-hmm. and i was already uh 20 no 17 years clean and sober and that's the thought the thought popped into my mind is everybody would feel sorry for me Mm -hmm. you know I was like man I'm sick Mm -hmm. that's some sick deep Mm -hmm. you know Um, well how did you guys handle that I mean if you don't mind me asking as as a family did your parents try to intervene did you try to intervene we tried to do an an intervention Mm -hmm. my other brother that used smoked with him boy there's a it's a whole story but so we had tried to do an intervention because my brother was talking so much shit about me i got to the point where i'm not coming to any family functions mm-hmm. anymore if he's there and he's high because it irritates my mom i can see the hurt in her face when he shows up just you know he was one of those druggies it was like barely alive you know just mm-hmm. just looked terrible and I was like, if he's coming, I don't want to be there anymore because he would always start shit. Oh, this is the story about the speakers that you were asking mm-hmm. about. So we were fighting. We were having trouble. I quit talking to my family and I quit talking to my brother because I told him I wouldn't come anymore at the family functions if he was there and he was high. So we were having a Hanukkah dinner, big happy dinner. Everybody was there. My cousin was there. And my brother shows up just faded. And I went to my mom and my dad, and I said, you have a choice. You can either ask him to leave, or I will leave. And of course, big family, ah, what are you going to do this to? I said, you have a choice. Either ask him to leave, or I can leave. I'll be happy to leave, and you guys can have. So they talked, and they said, he's right. We asked you not to come high. You have to leave, and I think it broke his heart. Mm -hmm. And he laughed, and from that day on, he was like, fuck you, and he would threaten me, and it was awful. Tore our family apart, Mm -hmm. because they were trying to support me, but they also loved him. And I would catch him, like, they'd have family dinners without me and not tell me about them, Mm -hmm. so that he could be there. And I would have rather they just said, we're inviting your brother for dinner. Mm -hmm. So I would yell at him, why are you fucking inviting him, and if I fucking hate you, and it was horrible. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, and then one day my car got broken into and my speakers got stolen and the police came over and filled out their little form and they said, uh, do you have anybody that's out to get you or you suspect? And I played some of the recordings of him threatening me and they said, well, that's technically domestic violence. Would you like us to go pick him up? 
And I was like, yeah, put him in jail. Because I'm thinking maybe that'll be a catalyst to some yeah. recovery or something. Mm-hmm. And he went to jail, and my older brother bailed him out. And then a, more family drama. How do you put your brother in jail? It's not mm-hmm. right. He said he didn't do it. And I was like, yes, he did. Mm-hmm. But he might not have done it, but he paid someone some drugs or something to go, go fuck my brother's car up, you know. So three years, I barely spoke to my family, and we fought. And then when he died, me and my sister and my brother, my other brother, were cleaning out his his house. And he had one of those water beds with the under drawers. And I opened a drawer, and there were my speakers. Mm-hmm. And my sister was just like, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So it was deep. So you were the one that had gotten clean. You I were know. on the right path. You're working with kids, but you're the one that's kind of estranged from the family. Yeah, because they couldn't let him go. They were. Mm. St- that's enabling, right? That like, enabling. I'm with mm. two therapists, so I got to use a technical term. The message <laughs> I got from them was, uh, we love him and we want to spend as much time with him as we can before he dies. Mm. And my argument was, let's get him healthy and we'll have him the rest of our lives. Mm. And I've learned through therapy, too, that the addict will go for the weakest link. If they can find one family member to side with them, they have strength. Mm-hmm. So, if say if, if you were working with you know, your family, what would you do? Would you, I guess, empower the quote-unquote weakest link? Or how would you... Kind of the term that I like to use mm-hmm. is you're loving them to death. Mm. You're not helping them any. Mm-hmm. You're enabling their illness. Mm-hmm. You know, if you buy them food, that's money they don't have to spend on food that they spend on drugs. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a tough one because it's hard to say, I'm done with you. Mm-hmm. But the, the message I like families to tell is, as long as you're clean and sober, we love you and you're welcome to be around us. But you're sick and you need help. And when you're ready, we're here for you. Because mm-hmm. even the kids I work with, you know, they'll be... Oh, I got really bad when my parents kicked me out. And I'll be like, did your parents kick you out? Or did they say, follow these rules and you left because you didn't want to follow them? <laughs> Nine out of ten times, that's the story. Yeah. So you work with parents to set rules. And if you don't follow the rules, you can't stay here. Mm-hmm. But we would love you to stay here if you follow the rules. Mm-hmm. you got to let them know you love them, I think. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. hard. That makes sense. But yeah, that's hard when, you know, one parent says, well, gosh, Dave, I can't do that because if he goes on the street, he's going to overdose and die. I hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. What about interventions? We started to talk about that a little bit. What, when you're advising families that have a kid that's in trouble, do you recommend the, the full-on intervention approach or just the set the rules and let them make their own decision? Usually a couple things. By the time I get them, they're already in the justice system. So the intervention's kind of already been done. Mm-hmm. But it is sorting out the family, like who's the enabler and who's giving them money and who's making excuses for them. Where's the guilt, you know? A lot of kids I work with, their parents were addicts and went to prison. Mm-hmm. So they feel guilty that they weren't mm-hmm. there. And that's your issue, that's not your kid's issue, mm-hmm. you know? And you help, you being soft on them isn't helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't, I don't think I've ever done an intervention on one of my kids because they can't afford them. That requires an expensive treatment center where they have qualified staff to do that. 
the interventions are more, what do we call them, jeopardy hearings? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bring the whole family yeah. in and the court system and, ooh, you need to stop. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a different bottom. My thing is what I tell parents, I think, to answer, yeah. we want to make their use as uncomfortable as possible mm-hmm. so that they come to the conclusion, I don't like living like this anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't want to live under a bridge and mm-hmm. hiding from my family, you know? Well, that, that makes me think of something that you told mm-hmm. me, you know, a year ago or whenever that really stuck with me, Jason. You, you said that the only thing that will make someone change, and this doesn't even just specifically apply to addiction or recovery, the only thing that causes a person to change is pain. They themselves have to feel enough pain to want to make the change. So, they like you're talking about, they, they've got to be in that, that uncomfortable living under the bridge situation and say enough is enough because nobody, nobody else can convince you you gotta feel the pain yourself. When you've used everybody that loves you up, mm. it's pretty lonely out there. Yeah. You know? When you've burned everybody and nobody trusts you anymore. And the drugs aren't helping anymore. Mm-hmm. What would you say to someone who's there? <laughs> it gets better. Okay. There's hope. It gets better. There's, there's hope. Yeah. You know, there's joy, there's fulfillment out there. You can pursue anything and feel satisfied. You don't have to be the way you are. I always joke, I always tell kids, I'm like, if I could teach you one thing that would change the rest of your life forever, would you want to learn that one thing? And they're always like, yeah, what is it? And I say, don't do drugs. (laughs) It will improve everything in your life, I guarantee it. You'll be a better student, you'll be a better son. You'll have more joy and more happiness. Mm -hmm. There's a saying in 12-step work, keep it simple, stupid. Mm -hmm. And also, it's simple, but it's not easy. It is simple. As long as you stay clean, things are going to get better.